we're gonna figure out how to open this thing i know it's always like uh hit record stare at each other awkwardly for three seconds then one of us has to be like um hi <laughs> here we um, are we're doing this thing <laughs> hi uh hello Weirdo. uh so hi. this is episode seven of the weirdest thing yay kind of hard to believe it's like two months into this thing i feel like we've been doing this forever and like we started mm-hmm. yesterday yeah, it's kind of exactly how I feel. And I do, yeah. before, we, uh, before we dive in, I want to say, like, I was looking at our analytics on Pinecast earlier Ooh. today. We had a big spike in listeners this week. So, we did? Yeah, we did. Um, we're up to, cool. I think, just over 400 total listens. We got, Hey-o. the whole subscriber thing is super confusing because, like, some days I'll log in, I'll be like, you have 56 subscribers. And then I log in the next day, and it's like, you have 23 subscribers. And then the next day, it'll be like, you have 45 subscribers. I I have no (laughs) idea what's going on with that. But yeah, but thank you guys for listening. Yeah. And while we're talking about it, why don't you get on whatever your podcast uh, streaming platform of choice is and rate us, review us, subscribe, because that really helps us build our audience. Look, here's the thing. If you want us to one day have uh, the weirdest thing merch, Mm -hmm. we we need you to go rate review and subscribe and we know <laughs> i'm gonna blackmail people everyone's clamoring for the weirdest thing merch, so <laughs> weirdest thing t-shirts weirdest thing drink cozies fucking birth control pill packets um condom cases. <laughs> fucking iud's yeah with the, me and scotty's faces on them oh my god we need to patent the weirdest thing iud like tomorrow <laughs> Make it look like a little alien head or something. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Fucking sweatbands. Yeah. I actually have a, a a friend who has a like a um like a you know the little like beer koozie mm-hmm. things that we could fucking we could give we could get those. Fucking magnets, bottle magnets, openers, keychains, uh, body pillows. Yeah, all of it. But spatulas. to do that, you need to subscribe, rate, and review. The show. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not getting any of that sweet, sweet merch until we do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so uh, we kind of bummed everyone out last week, I think. Although I have been getting uh, some messages from people. I think people actually enjoyed the episode. But it was, I think, maybe a little unexpectedly grim. It was. It was just very sad. Like I knew Sonny Bean and Elizabeth Bathory were going to be grim. But this was like real life grim, you know. So I think yeah. we're we're going to try and kind of lighten things up maybe a little bit this week. Although I haven't yeah. heard your story yet, so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> no, mine is all is all just good good uh wacky knowledge fun. Yeah. So these are a couple like aviation themed stories yeah. this week. So and I yeah, think you're going first. You know it. Yes, I am going first. So I am going to talk to you all today about the conspiracy theory surrounding the Denver International Airport. Ooh. 
Ooh. Um, <laughs> uh, so a lot of this information comes from articles from The Independent, Mother Jones, Mental Floss, Travel and Leisure, mm. uh, Thrillist, and of course, our favorite uh, Wikipedia. Yeah. I'm also going to talk about some stuff from two articles, The Theory About Conspiracy Theories, uh, which is an article from the New York Times by Benedict Carey, and True Believers, The Psychology of Conspiracy Theories from Psychology Today by Noam Spencer. I like that name. That's a, it's a, it's a name. Good job, yeah. Noam. Noam Spencer. Cool. So the Denver International Airport is situated on over 30,000 acres. It is the largest airport in North America and the second largest airport in the world after King Fahd International Airport in Saudi Arabia. Hmm. It also has the longest runway in North America, which I think I want to say I didn't write it down uh, because I'm a dum-dum, but I want, it's like three miles long or something Why like that. would you need a runway that long? For aliens, maybe? For aliens, for yes. For aliens? <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to check in with my resident aviation expert, which is my oldest brother, uh, mm-hmm. who's a pilot. So I'll ask him. Denver International Airport replaced Stapleton Airport, which was just, okay. This is a really, all of this, this whole story is full of like really funny things because it's about conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. But one of the big things that comes up when they're talking about the Denver International Airport airport is people are like why did they need to build this new airport why did we why did it need to be so far away stapleton was totally fine well stapleton wasn't totally (laughs) fine it was too small it was Mm -hmm. too close to denver i mean it's right i've been by stapleton it's right in it's like east denver right and it had parallel runways that were too close together which made landing and inclement weather like nearly impossible mm. and you're talking about denver which yeah which is frequently always. has inclement yeah frequently has inclement weather um so there's the reasons guys if you're listening to this and you're hoping for me to like i don't know prove or support co- conspiracy <laughs> theories about the denver international airport maybe maybe switch off or forward ahead <laughs> to scotty's story because this is just going to be severely disappointing for you okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm preemptively um, disappointed so okay. go ahead We're all preemptively disappointed. So Denver International Airport opened in 1995, 16 months behind schedule and $2 billion over budget. Whoops. Um, This was largely because of issues with the faulty automated baggage system. So Denver (laughs) had this whole idea for this like fancy, fancy smancy, I can't talk, fancy schmancy underground automated baggage system that okay. was going to like, you know, it, it was, it was going to be the crown jewel of the Denver international airport. And it, it literally never worked. <laughs> Good job, um, guys. In, in April of 94, people from the Denver international airport, or I'm sorry, I think actually people from the city of Denver invited reporters like to observe the first test of the baggage system. <laughs> and it was an absolute failure. Like people watched as the baggage system, like like they saw clothing and items like strewn across the tracks. <laughs> they saw luggage being like thrown violently from the belt. Like nah. just... Maybe they should have done a dry run before they had the reporters. <laughs> it's so, it's so like, uh, you know, I just imagine like a curtain and it's all... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it like takes off, stuff starts smoking. The baggage system never ended up working mm-hmm. ever. It was finally, uh, finally, finally put out of its misery in 2005. <laughs> uh, in 2019, Denver International Airport serviced nearly 70 million travelers, and it is the largest employer in the state of Colorado. Yeah. It's situated about 25 miles outside of downtown Denver. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they did was, this was to avoid noise from the aircrafts and to allow more generous room for, for the runways. Yeah, because um, it's like way out. I've, I've been... It's way out there. Way out in the plains. Yeah, like uh, we went to go see a friend of mine who was doing a show in Denver and some other friends picked me up because I was like, I'm not doing the drive to Denver. Um <laughs> fly instead so i flew into into denver into the denver international airport and then i felt like we drove for four hours to get Mm. to where we were staying well and it's that thing because it's like way out on the plains so you can't like judge distance and you see the mountains and you think yeah and it's like the thing you're driving towards them and they actually look like they're getting farther away is yes yeah yeah so it's way the hell out there there's uh the jepson terminal uh, has this like peaked roof design and that that terminal is internationally recognized mm-hmm. and was designed by Fentress Bradburn Architects and the peaked roof roofs are supposed to evoke the snow-capped mountains mm-hmm. of Denver. So almost from the beginning, Denver International Airport was plagued with conspiracy theories about the layout, the site, the construction, and most especially the art. Mm-hmm. Um, a significant portion of the budget that went into Denver International was allotted specifically for the procurement and curation of original work, okay. uh, works of art. <laughs> this art really ended up providing, like, I don't <laughs> think anybody when they set out to do this was like, do we think any of this is weird? Do we think that anybody's <laughs> going to look at this weird? I think they were like, here's a bunch of cool art. And then everybody was like, what, what the, the F fuck is this? Hidden mean messages. I mean, before I knew anything about any conspiracy theories of that airport, I remember mm-hmm. flying through there probably on my way to visit my brother in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So this was probably 96, 97. We mm-hmm. went to Denver and I remember, going between the terminals and looking at some of the paintings and being like, what the fuck is this? Like, yeah, we're going like to talk Dante's about Dante's Inferno or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're going to talk about that. So <laughs> <laughs> the art that is included in, and this is by no means a comprehensive list. This is just basic. This is the stuff that is sort of generated the most mm-hmm. uh, conspiracy theory fodder. And that includes the blue Mustang, also known as Blucifer, uh, which is by artist Luis Jimenez. Uh, The sculpture was one of the earliest public art commissions for the new airport uh, Mm. by the city of Denver. And the Blue Mustang is a 32-foot-tall, bright blue fiberglass stallion that is reared up on its hind legs Mm -hmm. and has glowing red eyes. (laughs) That is one that I'm like, in, in the design of it, was nobody like, does this look like this horse is possessed? Yeah, like Should no one. Class- and if you look up a picture of Lucifer, because I have, I mean, it is like even just on Instagram, it's terrifying. Like, it's, it's. I mean, I think it's. I think it's really cool. There's a gorgeous. It's cool. There's a gorgeous photo, probably a, a couple of photos of the blue Mustang, and like lightning is cracking, mm-hmm. like in the background, and it's. I mean, it looks. It looks cool as shit. 
Okay, so, okay, like a bit of a weird statue, but why the conspiracy theories about it? Well, the artist, Luis Jimenez, actually died while he was creating the sculpture. Oh, wow. The head fell on him, and it severed an artery in his leg. Oh, my God. So he passed away, and the work had to be finished without him. Jimenez was actually living in New Mexico at the time. So I read a New York Times article about his death because he's, he's, he's a renowned artist. Mm. His stuff is, is, is uh, everywhere is quite popular. Uh, there, was, there was a statue of his that was in Old Town here in Albuquerque, mm-hmm. but it was removed for reasons yeah i think i remember reading about that Mm -hmm. so the new york times article i read though was like jimenez was born in el paso moved to new york and decades later moved back to new mexico and i was like wait hold up (laughs) motherfuckers new york times this is why nobody trusts you because For the sole reason that you don't know that El Paso is not in New Mexico. Yeah, I mean, you've got this world-renowned fact-checking department. (laughs) You can't even correctly identify the state. Yes, and El Paso is probably like, I mean, although, honestly, I wish we could annex El Paso. I do like El Paso. I do, too. I do a lot. Um, But it is not New Mexico. It is not New Mexico. It is Texas. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So Jimenez was actually living in New Mexico at the time of his death. And like I said, his his work is well known throughout mm-hmm. the state. So that's the sad story of the Blue Mustang. Then there's the Denver Airport murals, uh, mm-hmm. which were created by artist Leo Tanguma. I think They're, those are what I'm remembering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are four large murals that are, quote unquote, ambiguous in meaning. Um, <laughs> I'm there's Okay. There's going to be a lot of, look. Listen, I'm not the news, uh, so uh, it's really, it's going to be very difficult for me to not editorialize while I'm doing this. So much of this stuff and the theories that surround the art in the Denver International Airport are people being like, my interpretation of this is the correct interpretation. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who creates work for public consumption, I... And I'm, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with having people say, you know, hey, I placed meaning on this thing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what your meaning about this thing was. The only thing that matters is this meaning that I took away from it. And not only it doesn't matter what your meaning, the creator, like meant to have on there. It also doesn't matter what any other audience member thinks yeah. about it, which is just... Like, irks, like, it just bugs me because well, I'm just like, what makes you so smart? I mean, it's confirmation bias, which is like... I'm 100% very... going to talk about that later. Yeah, I was going to say, I know. Like, yeah. when you talk about conspiracy theories, you have to talk about confirmation bias. Yes. Yeah. yeah huge part of that. So, uh, four murals that are ambiguous in meaning. There's scenes of, like, animals in cages, fires, people suffering. There's a... Mm-hmm. a what many people think is like a Nazi soldier with like a blade and a gas mask and a gun and all this type of stuff. Many folks think that the murals signify the inevitable surrender of the U S to Germany. (laughs) (laughs) That feels pretty inevitable. (laughs) Maybe 80 years too late. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, yeah, inevitable surrender of the U S to Germany and that therefore they're the, the murals are, about the new world order and mm-hmm. the collapse of society and civilization. Sure. 
A quick word about the New World Order. It is a conspiracy theory of a secretly emerging totalitarian world government, secretive power elite with a globalist agenda conspiring to rule the world, the Fourth Reich, alien invasion, occultism, population control, mind control. The New World Order folks of note include the Pope, the Catholic Mm -hmm. Church, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, Skull and Bones, and many more. Yep. So we get into like the Bilderberg group stuff. Yes. Also frequently said in the same breath as Freemasons and the Illuminati. And I'll get, uh, I'll get into why that's dumb in a bit. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Okay. So the artist, Leo Tanguma, am I saying his name right? Yes, I think so. I hope so. These murals were his first like big work of, of like his his first like big time break in in art yeah um like he he submitted his sort of application and the and the concept and design and everything and was like super pumped to be chosen to do all this stuff and then everybody gets in here to do all this stuff so he says that the murals represent the problem which is mm-hmm. violence famine war pollution extinction and the solution humanity children of the world liberation abundance and community all of this is explained on plaques that mm-hmm. sit right next to the yeah. fucking murals, but nobody wants to nobody wants to read those because of course everybody knows better than the person who made the damn thing. Well, they're the all on their place. way to like baggage claim, which apparently doesn't even work there. So <laughs> they're like, you know what? I'm 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 gonna get a Cinnabon, but real fast, let me let me <laughs> fucking take a look at this mural yeah. and see what type of creepy shit is in here. The theories about what the murals mean have actually negatively impacted Tanguma's livelihood. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well done, assholes. Yeah, well well done, conspiracy theorists. Yeah, the thing is, is that he does, he had done like he would, I think, go into, he would go into schools and I don't know if he would paint murals with the students there or if he would just paint murals in these local schools. Mm -hmm. And after all this stuff started to come out, like that work dried up. Oh, yeah. So seriously, well done, a-holes. Fuck off. Uh, this is a little weird. The murals do have a letter from a child who died in Auschwitz painted in the corner. So that, of course, sent the tinfoil hat crowd into a tizzy. Dentist turned conspiracy theorist. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Um, thinks the murals depict the genocide of black and brown people and believe the work is paid for by the Freemasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't remember which article it is in that they that they talked to him. And I'm sorry, bruh, dentist turned conspiracy theorist. <laughs> like, I I I know I know I really know that you feel like you're you've found the truth, but his stuff is so. Do you remember like the, the sort of conspiracy theory dude on the West Wing? Yeah. Who was like a, you know that dude who's like a yeah. wink is as good as a nudge to a blind man or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. This remember his piece. name was Bob. I don't remember his, <laughs> what his last name was supposed to be. It just, you know, like I was reading the article and I was like, okay, all right, yeah. okay. This guy's got a lot of ideas. Um, <laughs> so that's the story of the murals. Uh, the gargoyles. There are mm. various gargoyles throughout Denver International Airport uh, sitting in suitcases that decorate, like they're, they're around the baggage claim and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Folks think that the gargoyles are harbingers of 
evil, I almost said eagles, harbingers of evil. Artist Terry Allen says that he was thinking of airports and started thinking of like this big quality where people come in and blah, blah, blah. And that led him to the cathedral, that led him to think about mm-hmm. cathedrals and then airports as cathedrals. And so he was like gargoyles, like gargoyles is, is, is a, you know, a perfect symbol to right. have in an airport, you know, these uh, benevolent yeah. uh, beings that are watching over and protecting. Yeah, like guardians. Right, guardians. So if anybody doesn't know the actual mythology about gargoyles, the reason you see them on churches, uh, on the outside of churches and, and other buildings is they're thought to be good demons that protect and ward off the bad demons. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they're there for. They didn't build them on church to be like, look, evil. Like yeah. they, they were specifically put on churches for that reason. So church groups... Decided to like declare that the gargoyles were evil and they started doing things like putting cards in the gargoyle suitcases that said effigies of Satan and you're mm-hmm. going to hell. They left Bibles, that kind of stuff. Again, obviously, these people don't really have any idea about what gargoyles represent. Well, I'm guessing back to our epi- couple episodes ago, I mean, these are the same satanic panic people who thought Harry Potter was witchcraft and D&D was going right. to make me sell my soul to the devil right 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 also just like i mean there are a lot of things that these groups could be doing with (laughs) their time and energy and like you know community gathering so i do question uh, whether or not that harassing artists is the best yeah maybe use of that time maybe rethink your priorities Right. Uh, This brings us to the dedication. Uh, Mm -hmm. Conspiracy theorists believe that the airport was built by the New World Order because there is a big dedication plaque and apparently other plaques around the airport that say that the airport was funded by the New World Airport Commission, (laughs) which doesn't seem to exist. So... Bad on you, Denver, <laughs> for, <laughs> for putting that on there, because uh, that 100% makes sense. Uh, there's also apparently a time capsule buried in the big dedication plaque, stone, or whatever, mm-hmm. and people are like, there's a bomb in there. And I'm like, it's not a very good like surprise yeah. if everybody knows. It, all of this stuff is just so, it's... it's. I mean, okay, if they were like, it's an marks. alien crystal skull head or something. Right. But a bomb, like that doesn't even... It doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. Makes like sense. we're going to build this airport and then we're going to blow it up to show you guys. We're going to blow it up in 30 years or something. <laughs> yeah. So the plaque also bears the Freemason symbol of the compass and square, mm-hmm. which to conspiracy theorists is even more proof of ties to the new world order. Freemasons say like they believe that the Freemasons and the new world order are at least in cahoots, if not the same damn thing. But again, I'm going to get to why that's dumb in (laughs) in just a sec. The missing buildings. So uh, Denver international airport, like I said, went $2 billion over budget. Mm -hmm. And the story of how they got that much in the hole was that five buildings were built, but they ended up being faulty for some reason. No one can tell me what, the reason was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead of demolishing them or fixing them, Denver just buried them. And in reality, the reason that those buildings were buried is because they were going to provide bunkers for <laughs> the world's elite who would, uh, you know, surely fly to Denver in the case of an yeah. apocalypse. 
No, I mean, because where they're going to go is Colorado Springs, which is up in there and go to NORAD. Like, it doesn't even make sense. Like, that's not even a conspiracy theory. That's like, that's where they send you is the fucking Hollow Mountain in Colorado Springs. Like, why do they need Denver? Why do they need some, yeah, like, I, bullshit Quonset huts in Denver? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There, I think they're, yeah, they're, yeah. So there's that. The thing about this to me is how the fuck do you bury five buildings without there being like a hill or something? And if yeah. you've been out there, there's nothing there's it's flat. Yeah. Like there is nothing out there. There would at least be a mound. I mean, it literally something. looks like when you're like, if you're watching the wizard of Oz, it's like the yellow brick road to the Emerald city, just right. like flat, nothing. And then here's this thing coming out of the right. Yes. Yeah. There's like, yeah, there's no I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where they think they are. Okay, so cool. Let's talk about the Illuminati and the Freemasons for a <laughs> awesome. sec. Um, so the Illuminati is, I think a lot of people know them as like a weird society of alien reptilian humanoids. Uh-huh. But the Illuminati is actually a real, it's a real thing. Um, yeah. And they can be, um, so it's a name given to several groups, both real and imaginary. Uh, historically, it is the, there's the Bavarian Illuminati. Mm-hmm. And their goals were, ironically enough, to oppose superstition, obstructionism, <laughs> religious influence over public life, mm-hmm. and abuses of state power. Yeah. Uh, Illuminati, along with the Freemasons, were outlawed in Bavaria in 1784, 1785, 1787, and 1790. So they just like kept popping up like weeds and they're like, nope, another law. <laughs> well, nope, the thing, law. the thing that I like, I couldn't, I couldn't find out was, was it that they were like outlawed and then somebody came back in and was like, no, it's fucking stupid. Like they don't, they're just like, they just want to hang out and like, you know, like think about things and talk about stuff. So they're not outlawed anymore. Yeah. And then I the think, next year somebody was like, no, they are outlawed. I think it was. Cause I I've, I've read up a little on the Bavarian Illuminati mm-hmm. in, in my day. And like, <laughs> I think it was, do. I mean, I think it was something like that where it was like, cause they were basically like a fraternal organization and then someone yeah. would get in power and be like, like didn't like this one guy, he was in the Illuminati. So outlawed the whole thing, but then that right. guy would get out of power and then the next guy would get in and be like, oh, they're fine. It was just like right. this kind of back and forth. I don't think there was anything nefarious behind it. Right. And to be completely honest, between what I read about the Illuminati and the Freemasons, I would I would not at all be surprised if people were like, we don't like this because they were like secretive, secretive and that they weren't like out in the public, but it's not like they mm-hmm. were like, nobody can know about us, but they yeah. were, they were like closed membership, met in private didn't really talk openly about what they did in there. And I guarantee you that some of the figure was like, I want to be in the Illuminati or I want to be in the Freemasons. And they were like, nah, bruh, like we're good. And he <laughs> yeah. was like, fine, then you're evil. You, you 100% know that people are going to listen to this and all of a sudden we're going to get a bunch of emails and text messages saying we're members of the Illuminati. And maybe we are. Maybe. You'll never know because we're secret. <laughs> Weird lizard <laughs> sounds as Scotty and I morph. Um <laughs> Uh, the Illuminati is thought to have been responsible for the French Revolution, the Battle of Waterloo, the assassination mm. of JFK, and uh, they're also believed to have infiltrated Hollywood. Yeah. So good job. I mean, yeah. honestly. We get around. Yeah. Uh, many present-day Illuminati groups claim to have descended from the original Bavarian Illuminati, uh, but there's little to no evidence to prove that. Yeah. Also, the Illuminati have not amassed significant political power. Power or influence, <laughs> um, and 
everybody knows about them, so they're not doing a real good job of no. being secret. Yeah. You know, just like food for thought. Like I said, they're and like I said, there's they're allegedly shape-shifting reptilian mm-hmm. lizard people. Mm-hmm. So the Freemasons are a private fraternal organization that date back to the end of the 14th century. I didn't know they were that old. Yeah, I thought they were like 1800s or something. Um, They do not allow female members. However, apparently I learned that there are some chapters that will allow... This is one of those things where I'm like, for a group, a secret or fraternal order that's been around since the 1300s, I get. I want to give them like slight props for being at least somewhat progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they could do better by just being like, "Hey, men and women can, and 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 everyone in between can be involved in this." But I did find out that there are certain orders of the Freemasons that will allow trans women to be members as long as they were initiated before they transitioned. That's interesting. I really think it's, it's interesting. Like, they're sort of trying. It's kind of pretzel logic, but like one hundred percent. And and you know, is sort of like you know, well, you were a you know, it, it, yeah. like it feels it feels a little squicky to my like yeah. progressive brain. But I yeah, I, they're, I they're wanna... misunderstanding some basic things about yeah. The trans experience, but precisely, precisely. Yeah. Thank you for putting that better than than I was going to. I was just <laughs> going to keep wake, making weird squeaking sounds. Um, so, uh, conspiracies around the Freemasons date back to the late 18th century, and are okay. political, religious, and cultural in nature. So, you know, you saying the thing about them being around since the 1800s is the, the it's probably because that's when people started to be like, what the fuck is going on with the Freemasons and what are they doing in their weird little places? They're typically believed to be, again, part of the New World Order, but Mm -hmm. here's the thing. The New World (laughs) Order is, like, it stems from Nazis. Like, it's... Like, it's deeply tied. It's why, you know, it's like Fourth Reich and all that stuff. Like, it's deeply tied to, like, white supremacy and the master race and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Between 80,000 and 200,000 Freemasons were killed during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So, like, why would the New World Order be like, hey, sorry about that when we killed you during the Holocaust, but you're A-OK now. And not only are you A-OK, we've actually always been the same thing. Yeah. Like, again, the the pretzel logic of of believing that the two are tied. I think New World Order has just become a slogan. And, like, it sort of ends up being whatever you decide the enemy is. Right. So it's like if you're a left-winger, then the New World Order is the rise of fascism. If you're, right. like, a right-wing militia douchebag, it's like, it's the Socialism. UN or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and actually, like, the the Freemasons have received harsh criticism uh, from both the far right and the far left. Christians, mm-hmm. Muslims, Catholics, Methodists, Protestants etc like there yeah. hasn't been anybody who's hopped on the like anti-freemason mm-hmm. train. <laughs> yeah so that's just a little give you a little bit of of context about who allegedly the illuminati freemasons and new world order Right. So we're going to keep talking about some Illuminati and Freemason connections here. Uh, the dedication date of the Denver International Airport was March 19th, 1994. Mm-hmm. And if you add up the number, okay. I also <laughs> feel like anybody who's into numerology will be like, uh-uh, that's not how it works. <laughs> because 
my understanding of numerology is that you have to add up the whole thing. So like if you were to add up, if your birthday was March 15th, 1978, you would have to do like three plus one plus five plus Mm -hmm. one plus nine plus seven plus eight. But that doesn't make for good conspiracy theories. So the theory here is that the dedication date was March 19th, 1994. And if you add up the numbers of 19th and 1994, one plus nine plus one plus nine plus nine plus four, it sound like the end of clue. Uh, <laughs> that number equals 33, which is the highest level you can achieve in Freemasonry and is also, it represents perfection. Okay. This is why I was like, what's the Nazi number again? And you were oh, like, yeah. this is what it is. Yeah. I knew it was a double digit, yeah. um, but I was wrong. Yeah. So I feel like people who do numerology and if you do numerology, uh, holler at us on social media and let me know if I'm wrong about this. So, so basically they, they're just conveniently leaving off the three from one hundred. Yeah. 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 Because if you put the, and the thing that additionally, the other thing with this kind of stuff is that you can't, you can't have it. Like you have to take things down to a single digit. So technically even 33 would be wrong because 33 would then be, be three six. plus three, which would be six. Yeah. Which is, if you triple that, the mark of the beast. Oh, um, okay. I, I'm buying in. Okay. <laughs> it's evil. I'm sold. I'm sold. Totally sold. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first on yeah. the Weirdest Thing podcast. We've come up with a new conspiracy theory. Okay. So the swastika runways. People believe that the runways of Denver International Airport allegedly form a swastika when viewed from above. The runways sort of pinwheel out from a a, a central point to be safer and more efficient. I've seen pictures of the aerial view of the runway. You you got to want it. Yeah, I think I've looked too and I kind of like squinted. It was like one of those like old 3D drawings where you have to like look real hard and then it kind of appears. I mean, the thing is, is that it looks like if you explained a swastika to somebody who had never seen one before, but only partially explained it and then they and then tried to like, go draw it and then they tried to go draw it yeah yeah i mean like i said you gotta want it so and, and they i guess do these want people it. do no they yeah. want yeah they do actually <laughs> the markings uh there's a series of strange markings on the floor throughout the airport that folks believe are the new strains of hepatitis or other <laughs> biological warfare agents. The truth is that some of them are either Navajo or Mayan language symbols. Um, I saw both. I saw people say, I saw some sources that said they were Navajo language symbols, or that, I'm sorry, that they were Navajo symbols. I saw others that said that they were Mayan symbols. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm not really sure there. And there are also elements from the periodic table. Yeah. Which we like, all know. I mean, the periodic table is like total Nazis. So Total Nazi yeah. baby eaters. Lithium, I've got my eye on you. <laughs> right. The tunnels. So we had the faulty baggage system. And mm-hmm. that left this vast network of underground tunnels. Baggage system was abandoned, like I said, in 2005. So what are the tunnels still doing? Theories are that (laughs) uh, Denver International Airport is actually the headquarters of the New World Order Mm -hmm. or the U.S. government. They're interchangeable. And uh, or that they're they're They lead to concentration camps. Okay. For who? I don't know. 
for the non-New World Order people. Apparently, yeah. A construction worker was apparently the one who blew the whistle on all of this weirdness having to do with the tunnels and the buried buildings mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. But his original testimony is nearly impossible to find. Ooh. Um, Sold yeah. again. Yeah, <laughs> sold again. <laughs> Killed by deep state. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the psychology of conspiracy theories. Yes. Let's get a little technical here. Conspiracy theories are the belief that some covert but influential organization is responsible for a circumstance or event. Mm -hmm. British psychologist Christopher Thresher Andrews says conspiracy theorists believe, quote, unsubstantiated, less plausible alternatives to the mainstream explanation of any event. They assume everything is intended with malignity. Mm Mm-hmm. Conspiracy theories are deeply and uniquely satisfying to our brains. Like there's a reason why we like really get off on conspiracy theories. And I'm going to tell you what those reasons are right now. Like you mentioned before, confirmation bias, which is our tendency to become attached to our own beliefs and to seek out or interpret info in ways that confirms our preconceptions. and something called belief perseverance, which is seeking to maintain our beliefs even after the info that originally gave rise to it has been refuted. So confirmation bias and belief perseverance are why once we've settled on a belief, no matter how diluted, we'll do, read, share, believe anything that supports that belief. Mm -hmm. Humans, we crave being uniquely knowledgeable Mm-hmm. to have knowledge that others don't have because knowledge is power and and we everyone would prefer to be powerful than powerless. Right. So conspiracy theories provide this really like seductive ego boost of like people who believe in them consider themselves to be part of like this elite select super group who've like really figured out like what's yeah. what. Yeah. Like, um, seeing the light kind of thing. Right. And like, you know, I'm I'm very special. Mm-hmm. Because I have this knowledge that not everybody else does. Yeah. And uh, all of your evidence is clearly actually evidence that you're just lying to me and you're right. faking the evidence. Right. Yeah. And I know, you know, I, I've, I, you know, I've taken the red pill and. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is why I, like never argue with a Trump supporter or an incel because you're just not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Unfortunately. So our brains, and I I thought this was really interesting. Our brains are actually hardwired for pattern recognition. So we are primed to fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. So when we see a story and we're like, huh, like there's a, you know, whatever, there's a little hole there, whatever, we will go in and insert meaning. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, meaning is the best word. We'll insert meaning into things where there really isn't any. I mean, it's kind of like looking at clouds and you see a dog or something. It's actually like directly tied to that. Like that the same part of our brain that does that is also like, you know, second gunman or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Chris Christopherson is a reptilian humanoid, (laughs) which is (laughs) an actual conspiracy theory I might talk about at some point. (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. I mean, there's a ton of celebrities, which makes me, I mean, I understand why they're like, oh, they've, yeah, they've infiltrated Hollywood and politics and all that stuff. But it's like, everybody's a, but like Chris Christopherson, like, that's a weird one. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I'd like Chris Christopherson, but I'm not really sure of his influential reach. I mean, I do know that he was like a big old sex symbol once, once upon a time. Like my mom, my mom made my dad grow a beard back in the 70s because she wanted him to look like Chris Christopherson. <laughs> and then like immediately oh, Marty. Like, yeah, exactly. And then she was like, you don't look anything like Chris Christopherson. Shave it off. 
She's like, mm, this was a mistake. Yeah. So yeah. So because our survival depended on like pattern finding and meaning making, it's 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 a, it's a survival skill that we've mm-hmm. held onto way long after it it it's not necessary or helpful anymore. Right. As social animals, we believe we have the capacity to guess what another person knows and how that how they'll use that knowledge. So this is Scotty and I, we're true crime fans. I think mm-hmm. we can say that with yeah. uh without shame and with pride. pride. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that we frequently talk about is how frustrating other true crime fans can be. Yes. Because there is this desire to dissect and analyze every little thing and like 100% there are people that it's like that behavior is squirrely as shit you know this is this is super weird but we have been so dramatically conditioned by movies and and tv to and dramatic conditioning means we believe that somebody in this emotional state or or i mean or any state really uh, will behave in this way. The example Mm -hmm. that has been, uh, that sort of brought this term to me is people think because of movies and TV that drowning looks a certain way when drowning actually doesn't look anything like that. And so people can be 10 feet away from somebody who's drowning and they don't, they don't realize it Mm -hmm. until it's too late because they expect the thrashing and the arms up in the air. Right the yelling and all that stuff when actually something like drowning is, is much quieter and much. Mm-hmm. It's just you know, kind of going conscious. Yeah. So because of that, people think, Oh, if you do this in this situation, that means like, this. yeah, if you do X in this situation, in this situation, that means Y. But the thing is, is that I'm going to say something that I say to anybody who's worked with my theater company, like there is no blueprint for the human experience. Yeah. And sometimes weird behavior is just weird behavior because people are awkward. They don't know how to deal with this. Well, it's like, it's like how, how cops will interrogate a, the husband of a woman who was just murdered and the husband's not showing any emotion. So they're like, well, clearly there's something up with him because he right. know, not crying and I'm, but it's like, he may just, he may be in shock. He may experience grief differently. He may be one of right. those people who goes inward rather than outward. Like right. you can't jump to that conclusion, but people do it all the time. Yeah. And I, you know, there was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, the first new season that was released, what, at the beginning of this fucking pandemic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, where I saw a lot of people talking about, there was a case of a woman who ran a salon and she went missing. And I think her body was was eventually discovered, but I saw a lot of people talking about like the husband and they were like, and he's smiling through the whole interview. And I went back and watched it and I was like, you're reaching for saying that that's a smile. I'm not saying that that guy I'm not saying that that guy isn't creepy and I'm not saying that he doesn't have anything to do with it, but you're looking for patterns and you're trying to make meaning in stuff that isn't there. Yeah. I remember you texting me and being like, what do you think? And I think my response was, well, the guy's weird. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was involved. 100%. But I don't think we can say one way or the other. Right. And I think that's the thing is that like, you can 100% go and watch that stuff and be like, here is the, like, just stranger danger. Like the weird, you know, creepy vibes that are rolling off of somebody that's alerting you to your own internal, you know, Mm -hmm. um, safety mechanisms can be dinging, but like the guy wasn't smiling. 
Yeah. So don't say that he was. But basically, yeah. but people literally see it because they want to see it. Right. Like this honestly, on ways. You have to like. Right. Really... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> like, I want this to be something more than it is. So that it looks like a perfect swastika to me. Yeah. Uh, we'll, of course, post pictures of this stuff on our social media so you guys can see what we're talking about. I was going to say, we could do a side by side comparison. I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows what a swastika looks like. We don't need to be posting them on Instagram. Yeah, and on, I mean, and honestly, if you don't, like, good for you. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful life you've led if you've not had to look at a swastika yet at this point. Um, yeah. But I mean, like, go ahead and Google them or, you know, go to a Trump parade. Um, <laughs> okay, so because of all of this stuff that I just mentioned, the, like, confirmation bias, a belief perseverance, uh, this desire to be uniquely knowledgeable, uh, pattern recognition and meaning making, all of that stuff, um, conspiracy theories are actually analogous to religion. Mm-hmm. Like, the things that fire off in our brains when we believe conspiracy theories are the same parts of our brains that fire when we believe in religion. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, yeah. In the past, psychologists have found that conspiracy theories act as like, like a balm for deep grievances and they provide psychological, they provide like a psychological ballast, like a support, a sense of control an internal narrative to make sense of a world that seems senseless. Mm-hmm. In a study called looking on, <laughs> in a study called looking under the tinfoil hat, <laughs> uh, this study was done by Shauna Bowes and Scott Lilienfeld. They led a team that administered tons of personality tests to see if they could figure out what kind of person was susceptible to conspiracy theories. Personality features that were solidly linked to a belief in conspiracy theories are entitlement, self-centeredness, impulsivity, cold-heartedness, elevated levels of depressive moods and anxiety, as well as a pattern of thinking called psychoticism, which Mm. is a core feature of schizotypal personality disorders. Mm. And it's characterized by odd beliefs, magical thinking, and paranoid ideation. It's a milder form of full-blown psychosis. Yeah. So. So maybe be a little careful with your conspiracy theories. Yeah. And I think like we've talked about this on here before that like, I love a good conspiracy theory Mm -hmm. much in the way that I love going to a haunted house, but it's like fun to play in that world for a sec, Mm -hmm. but I don't believe. Well, like when I was younger, I think I wanted to believe conspiracy theories. And I think it's Mm because it's like the punk rock horror movie guy in me, just like it's fucked up and weird, but also there's a part of me. I mean, it's again, it's the horror writer in me that like looks at any situation. It's like, but what if it's true? Like what if people are actually reptilian humanoids? And then I just kind of want to play it out as like a story. Right. But I, I lost and like, there are definitely, I think there are some, I guess you would call conspiracy theories, quote unquote, that I'm probably more inclined to at least entertain mm-hmm. like you know some of the alien stuff i am definitely one of those people when i hear the weather balloon story about roswell i'm i i, I tend to put the tinfoil hat on because yeah I, I don't i don't buy that it was a weather balloon um <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and like I jfk think... conspiracy theories it's like i think at this point i don't even know if that qualifies because i feel like 
I think almost everyone agrees like something's up with that story. We may not know who was behind it, but there's something that we haven't been told about it. Right. But then when it gets into like some of this stuff and like, and I think I mentioned this before, like I used to be kind of drawn to conspiracy theories. I used to think they were kind of fun until you kind of realize how many of these it's like, well, all roads just lead to blame the Jews like real fast. Um, No. And like they quite literally do. They all, if you follow them down long enough, the, the, the main nugget is this happened because Jewish people are trying to take over the world. Right. I mean, that's like you mentioned all the people who are supposedly in the New World Order and you said the Rothschilds. Like mm-hmm. all the Rothschild conspiracy theories are rooted in anti-Semitism. And yeah. so it's like, as a Jew, that stuff kind of got to be less fun for me. Right. Well, <laughs> and I just, to, like, I mean, maybe this is like completely naive of me, but I mean, like, how long has the Jewish religion been around? Like, yeah. you'd think they would have done it by now. Yeah, exactly. I know, like, like, no one's called me to those meetings. So, like. yes. <laughs> Somebody said that. In what, I think it was the Psychology Today article that I quoted. He was like, as a Jew, I'm, you know, I'm a little bummed that nobody's invited me to the fucking yeah, secret society. Like, what the fuck am I, chop liver? Like, yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, just, you know, like some food for thought. Uh, so I watched this video that was from the New York Times, and uh, in it, they were interviewing this man named uh, Josiah Thompson, and he's the author of Six Seconds in Dallas, and he was talking about conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. He says, if you put any event under a microscope, you'll find a whole dimension of completely weird, incredible things going on. It's as if there's a macro level of historical research where things obey natural law and usual things happen and unusual things don't happen. And then there's this whole other level where everything is really weird. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about conspiracy theories as like an alternate dimension. Yeah. So the example that he gives is on November 22nd, 1963, it rained, which was the day that President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Mm-hmm. It it rained in Dallas the night before. Right. The rain had completely cleared up by 9:30 that morning. There were no umbrellas or raincoats in the plaza with the exception of the umbrella man Mm -hmm. who was standing under a black umbrella precisely where the shot started to fire into Kennedy's car. One thing, I I mean, I don't know. I feel like that has to do with camera angles and stuff, but okay. So yeah, right into Kennedy's car. Was it a signal? Some people thought people, I mean, people drew diagrams and plans Mm -hmm. that like there was a weapon and there was a, you know, a fucking projectile that like, beamed out and that's what got Kennedy in the throat and is it the magic bullet or whatever <laughs> it's not the magic bullet okay yeah oh I guess <laughs> wait no I, it was is that yeah I think that I think that is I, the, I think that is the wound that people okay. like magic bullet so everybody was like what does this mean well in 1978 the umbrella man came forward and he testified uh, in front of the House Committee on Assassinations and explained that the umbrella was a visual protest of the appeasement policies of Mm. Joseph Kennedy, JFK's father. The umbrella was a reference to um, Neville Chamberlain's black umbrella. I don't Mm. know enough about that stuff to know what any of it means. I mean, I know Neville Chamberlain was. Yeah. I know that he was like, he was the British Prime Minister who was like uh, trying to appease the Nazis before Churchill, but beyond that, I don't know anything. Yeah. So Thompson goes on to say, if you have any fact 
which you think is really sinister, hey, forget it, man, because you cannot never on your own think up all the non-sinister, perfectly valid explanations for that fact. Mm-hmm. A cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is, you know, again, like the meaning that we want to assign to this, like this is super sinister. Well, it's like, well, it's not super sinister. Yeah. It's, you know, it's and a painting like, or it's the periodic element for gold or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, and like here I am, like after I said, like I tend to believe the Kennedy conspiracy stuff, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then you just totally had to call me out. Um, but, <laughs> um, You're welcome. I, I think there's a difference between like like you hear the the story that's told to you by the government or the press or whatever and being mm-hmm. like mm, i'm not sure and like remaining kind of skeptical like i'm skeptical of the lone gunman theory yeah. but there's a difference between that and then being like and this umbrella means that there was a signal and i'm gonna do the red yarn across the thing and like right. create this whole fucking narrative like I'll, I'll say about like roswell or kennedy is it's like i think there might be something more there that we've been told but i'm not gonna sit here and like give you my fucking like diagram of what the fucking truth is right you know? well and i mean okay let's take aliens as an example let's mm-hmm. say that what happened in roswell was a, a, an alien mm-hmm. and the government was like we got a fucking alien yeah, what do we fucking do with this? Thing? One, what do we do with it? And how do we release this information in any way that doesn't cause mass hysteria? Yeah. Like, I think that's a big thing for me is that, like, sometimes you don't need to know everything. Right. Well, there are like, people that are smarter and more capable of dealing with stuff than you in, you know, in your basement or whatever, reading. <laughs> you know weird websites (laughs) and stuff are like you can't do anything about it so you uncovering this truth helps no one it just makes you feel superior yeah well and it's like in with roswell it's one where it's like i'm not sure i buy that it was a weather balloon and test dummies or whatever Mm -hmm. i'm not sure i'm also not gonna sit here and say i think it was aliens necessarily Mm -hmm. and even if it is aliens i don't necessarily think the government being like let's just like put this in a fucking like lockbox somewhere. I don't think it's like nefarious. It's kind of like what right. you were just saying. It's like, right. there's no like grand conspiracy. I think it's, it's just a matter of like, we don't know what the fuck to do with this. Right. Let's just not tell anyone. Right. And like, you can argue whether that's right or wrong, but I don't think it's like part of some big global fucking UFO conspiracy. Right. The other thing to me that is equal parts maddening, frustrating and hilarious to me is so many so many conspiracy theories back to the Nazis. Like mm-hmm. the Nazis are trying to take over. They're trying to have a resurgence. They're trying to do all this stuff. And yet in this country, when we have literal Nazis walking down the street, people are like, that's not what I'm, that's the, I mean, you can't like just throw around well, the word Nazi. Literally, and I'm like, they're literally carrying a swastika. Well, it'll be like those literal Nazis are the one who are, who are the ones who are claiming the new world order Nazis are going to take over. Like, yeah. Like it makes no. And that it's all because of the, Jews like it's so none of it makes sense (laughs) yeah like you it it really is just the 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 charlie day red thread (laughs) like all of the pictures uh you know image that pops up because it's just like you have you have to want this so badly this this is is indicative and signifies something way beyond just 
I do love this. I do love the Nazis in Antarctica theory, though, because it's so stupid. I don't know that. <laughs> well, there's supposedly a big hole in Antarctica, and okay. the Nazis are just like hanging out down there, waiting for their chance. And, All right. Like, yeah, it's real dumb. Okay. It's real and they've dumb. just been immortal, or are they old? I think they're all old now. There's probably like they probably raised like new Nazis who are just hanging out. Uh, did the not with did they have a bunch of women with them? I mean, there were Nazi women, so probably. I mean, I know there were Nazi women, Scotty. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. <laughs> okay, back to back to the Denver International yeah. Airport. So hilariously, and probably one of the most successful trolls of all time, Denver International Airport leaned into the conspiracy theories. <laughs> nice. uh, so in 2019, the flood of theories about Denver International Airport reached 6 million people and garnered about $1.5 million worth of free publicity. Yeah, They put up an animatronic gargoyle in the main terminal, <laughs> which generated over 720 news stories with an audience reach of 67.3 million people and publicity worth 1.9 million. The gargoyle said, welcome to the Illuminati headquarters. I mean, Denver International Airport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good, good for you, DIA. Yeah. yeah. Hell yes. Yeah. Good for you. The airport embraced the mythology, which allowed a te- which allowed an attention-grabbing way of sharing information with the mm-hmm. people in the airport and also allowed them to like start a conversation with folks. Yeah. They officially embraced marketing theory. Um, let me try that again. <laughs> Good grief. It's Sunday. They officially embraced theories as marketing tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, recent marketing imagery features uh, like the tunnels, the eye of Providence, which is the pyramid eye. Oh yeah. The blue Mustang. So for the blue Mustang, they have images of, of the, <laughs> the blue Mustang shooting lasers out of its eyes like (laughs) with text that reads are we creating the world's greatest airport or preparing for the end of the world learn the (laughs) truth at denfiles.com and when you go to that website it's just the website for the airport (laughs) (laughs) oh my god it's amazing uh they have other signs that say under construction or underground tunnels um (laughs) There's one that says, yes, DEN's got some secrets. And it's a picture of this. It looks like it's a very cute alien. Like it's your normal, you know, Mm -hmm. alien. But he's going like, shh. Like he's all (laughs) cheekily like, I've got a secret. Um, (laughs) uh, There's another one that has a picture of a cat with a tinfoil hat that says, what are we creating? (laughs) Um, And yet another one that says new concessions or new conspiracies. And that has a bunch of like, famous images from Denver airport. And it's all like red thread, like all over the place. Um, I very much appreciate that they took something that has like plagued them since they started since, since the thing opened and they were like, we can't run away from it. So let's lean into it. So bravo to the advertising folks that were like, just lean into it, just lean into it and go nuts with it and have a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of the, the gargoyle, I think might be my favorite. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. And and I do, I do like that. It's just a little bit trolly. Like it's just like, it's like with a wink and then also being like, this is real stupid, right? Yeah. So that's the that's the the story of the the Denver airport conspiracy theories. If you go doing your own little dive about it, you will find, I mean, it's something like it's over 2 million articles that have been written about mm-hmm. 
the conspiracy theories, they all basically talk about the same thing. Blue Mustang, the tunnels, the gargoyles, yeah. the murals, the buried building, etc. I mean, you didn't even really, like, I know there's so much to it because you didn't even really touch too much on, like, there's, I've read stuff that it's like there's an alien base underneath DIA. There's, yeah. like, portals to another dimension. It's, like, somehow <laughs> tied to the Philadelphia experiment. Like, I've read the right. craziest shit about that airport right um i want to go there now like i want to go look at like the animatronic gargoyle and me too yeah Yeah. and so and i think i mean when i say that like they all basically like the theories abound about what everything is but it's basically what they find suspect is the blue mustang the tunnels the murals the dedication plaques the gargoyles, mm-hmm. you know, it's like everybody has like all of these different theories about what everything it was, means. It was this this choice of artwork that they had. It seemed like it was just this perfect storm of they're like, let's get this cool artwork. And then mm-hmm. like, for whatever reason, all of the various artists were like, let's do something weird. Right. And then it all just kind of turned into like, it, it's like no one was coordinating. It was like, you know, the one artist no. had his reason for doing the gargoyles. The other artist had his reason for doing the murals, et cetera. Right. But then you put it all together. And like you said, the pattern recognition thing, all of a sudden people are like, Right, because there's also like bronze sculptures of like ast- like famous astronauts in there, and nobody's yeah. like that means that the moon landing would well, like they they're just like that doesn't fit into the narrative. Yeah, and so we're not like it's it's funny, right? Because they're like everything has a meaning, but not the stuff that doesn't fit into the narrative that I'm writing. Well, that I mean that's how this works. That's why you like 100%. conveniently drop the three from the numerology thing because mm-hmm. it doesn't add up. I and I remember like it's been a long time since I've been to DIA since I, mm-hmm. I usually avoid Denver mainly be, particularly if I'm flying in the wintertime because it's just like you know you're gonna get snowed in there yeah you're gonna get stuck so it's been a long time since I've been there but I do remember specifically that mural with the guy with the gas mask and that's the yeah. one I remember getting off the plane I was probably with my parents and just walking mm-hmm. through and being like what the fuck is that and yeah. like of course, me being who I am was like, that's fucking cool. Like I wanted it on a t-shirt or something, but I didn't, right. I didn't like wonder about it. I was just, it, it was maybe a little bit of wondering like, why would you put that in an airport? It seemed like right. a weird thing to put in an airport, but. Um, but I think that's the other thing too, right? Is that it's, it's, it's because I think if you look at, there are four murals and the two that represent the, the problem, according to the artists mm-hmm. are much smaller and the two that represent the solution are much bigger. Mm-hmm. So it's, who was I talking about this with? Was I talking about this? I may have been talking about this with, with my other best friend. And we were talking about, you know, being so close to something that you can, you can sit there and you can be like, oh, like looking at a painting, right. you know, an inch away from it and being like, oh, this is just a bunch of dots. But then when you step back, you're like, oh, it's not yeah. a bunch of dots. It's a whole field of flowers. Right. And, and that idea that it's like, I'm only looking at this one thing. Well, if you were to look and take time the whole. to look at and observe the whole of it, You'd be like, oh, no, this is telling a story. And the story is, this is what's, you know, what's what's killing us. And this is the solution to it. Which, again, is like peace and unity. Yeah, exactly. And I think the only reason I think it's maybe a little weird to put in an airport, this is like no shade to the airport or to the, certainly not to the artist, is Mm -hmm. just knowing how people move through airports. Right. Like, it's not like going through like a museum where you like, take the time to look at the paintings and context right you're just walking by on your way to the cinnabon and you're like what the why is the guy got the gas mask 
Right. I think it's also important to say that all of this was done before September 11th. And that's true. we actually did move through airports differently back then. That That's a good point. That's, that is a really good point. But like, I don't know, like, at the, so like on one level, I'm like, it's a little weird to put it in an airport, like mm-hmm. sort of just an odd decision. But at the same time, I'm like, I appreciate, it's like a ballsy decision. Like I appreciate, yeah. like, it's not just some like pastel bullshit. No, I mean, I've been in, I mean, I've been in other airports where they're like, here's a field of flowers. And it's like, yeah. okay, you know, yeah, this is cares? something that is like, it, it took time. They, they found artists, you know, and it's like real this was art. a big deal for the artists yeah. to be chosen, to be part of the art that was displayed at Denver international. Yeah. It bums me out that that artist that hurt his career. I hope he's doing all right. Yeah. I hope he is too. I hope that that stuff has been able to like pick up for him. And his stuff is, is, is it's like, it, it kind of evokes a little bit of like Diego Rivera and that style. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I, I enjoy it, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the video that I saw where he was talking about how, you know, he stopped getting the commissions from schools and stuff. They showed him doing a bunch of other paintings um, and his stuff is lovely. Luis Jimenez, like I said, who did the blue, blue Mustang. Mm-hmm. I think I can't remember guys. I may have been, interchangeably calling it the blue stallion and the blue Mustang. It's the blue Mustang. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So don't, please don't fat check me on that. Okay. <laughs> please. I know I can, I can. No, they're just going to accuse you of being in the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's like my yeah. eyes flash. <laughs> my lizard eyes flash. Okay. All right. So there we go. That's the story of the All Denver right. International Airport and its conspiracy theories. Well, good job. I didn't actually know that much about the conspiracy theory. So that was, that was interesting. This has been, so like this, this has been an interesting thing uh, for our listeners. Uh, Scotty and I, when we started talking about doing a podcast, the original name for this podcast was Rabbit Hole yeah. because we would frequently fall down these rabbit holes of like, oh, I was looking up, you know, I was looking at the history of the Denver International Airport and then I fell down this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and then yeah. that led me to the psychology of conspiracy theories and and all of that stuff. The name Rabbit Hole, uh, there are like, 34 other podcasts that <laughs> yeah. have that name including but, one that's like a new york times one or something <laughs> yeah, we were we were like can we get away with it's the new york times though Maybe not. um and we had a whole we we played around with a whole bunch of other names and then we kind of came up to the weirdest thing because i think scotty and i frequently say the weirdest thing about this is yeah and, and so that's where it kind of came from but all of this is is just the joy of clicking link after link after right. link after link after link and then you know all of a sudden you've got you've got 16 tabs open yeah. on your desktop and yeah. <laughs> three days have gone by. <laughs> yeah. I was just reading today about how uh, certain beetles strip flesh from bodies. Mm. Um, it was research for a story, but <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, so my story, uh, like I said at the beginning, we kind of bummed everyone out last week. So I'm looking to kind of cheer you guys up a little bit. So I'm going to tell you about an air disaster. <laughs> um, this is the story of the Gimli Glider. Hey. So my main source for this is there's a show, it's on the Smithsonian Channel. It's alternately called either Air Disasters or Mayday. I think it's like different countries, it has different names. Mm-hmm. And just real quick sidebar, I just want to talk a little bit about this show. I am fucking obsessed with this show. Of course. Um, I think I've watched like every episode of like four times. Ugh. Like it's it's like I know everyone out there is like 
Breaking Bad is the greatest show of all time or The Wire is the greatest show of all time. I'm I like I want to make an argument for Air Disasters being the greatest show of all time because you're going to you're going to go to change.org to start a petition. <laughs> to start a petition that for Air declares <laughs> yes. Air Disasters/Mayday as the like, best show on television. It's on the Smithsonian Channel. I think it should be in the Smithsonian Museum. It's like okay. that amazing. <laughs> <laughs> But like what's amazing just on a loop. <laughs> yeah, just on a loop. <laughs> What's amazing about the show is like I never had a fear of flying mm-hmm. until I became obsessed with the show, and I actually induced a phobia in myself. Oh, that's unfortunate, <laughs> but is. understandable. Because I have become you, a real nervous flyer. Can you like? Can I watch it anywhere? Do I have to purchase the seasons? You have to purchase them. Like they have them on Ugh. Amazon. Although this episode, this was season one, episode two of Air Disasters. It's not available on Amazon for some reason. I had to. I found it weirdly on Facebook. Okay. There's like a Facebook video of it. And like they used to have a bunch up on YouTube, but I think they've pulled a lot of them down. Um, okay. But it was this show. And then there was another one that was called Seconds from Disaster that I was, um, okay. which wasn't as specifically about air disasters. But the thing about this show is it's like the reason it gave me an actual phobia is like all of these episodes, it'll be like this one toggle bolt failed. And then this one indicator light didn't. Oh and then all of a sudden it crashed and everyone died. Oh God! Um, yeah, or actually, the best episodes are the Russian ones because those will be like the pilot was drunk and he had his <laughs> nine-year-old kid flying the plane, and then the co-pilot was like, "Oh my God!" Like the thing about having that, a the nervous thing, breakdown, and then yes, they cloud into a mountain. The thing about what Scotty is saying here is that he's not making that up. There is actually air disasters where they crashed because the pilot gave over the controls of the plane to his yeah. child. No, that was one. It was, it was, I don't remember the flight, but it was one in Russia. Like the guy mm-hmm. had his fucking 10 year old kid in the cockpit and was like, why don't you try? And then right into the ground. Like, don't make that sound. <laughs> God, he lost their, like, people yeah. lost their lives. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> As a, and then I laugh. <laughs> yeah, then you laugh. <laughs> but so this show, one of the very first episodes was the story of the Gimli Glider. Okay. So I'm going to take you back to Air Canada Flight 143. This mm-hmm. is. Uh, July 23rd, 1983. So Air Canada Flight 143. It was a Boeing 767 wide-body jet. It ran out of fuel halfway between Montreal and Edmonton, Alberta. Oh. So, like, I don't know how aware of Canadian geography y'all are, but, like, Montreal's way the fuck on the east. Like, okay. it's over by New England. And then Edmonton is, like, right above Idaho. So we're oh. talking, it's, it's like a 2,000-mile flight. Yeah. It's sort of like flying from New York City to Salt Lake City. Okay. So it's not like a short hop. And halfway through, they ran out of fuel. There were 61 passengers aboard, eight crew members. Now, these 767s could fit up to 300 people. So they were lucky they only had – it was like it was a very light flight. They didn't have so many people on board. Mm-hmm. Captain Bob Pearson and First Officer Maurice Quintel, Quintal, they were the pilots of this flight they're both very experienced pilots uh pearson himself had over fifteen thousand hours of flight time and then quintal had seven thousand hours but the thing was the 767 was brand new it had basically been in service for less than a year it was put on the market in september 8th 1982 so it was Mm -hmm. less it was about nine months or so Mm -hmm. that it had actually been flying so uh quintal said in a later interview that he had actually 75 total hours on the 767 it was completely new plane a couple things to be aware of with the 767 is that it was very highly automated 
as compared to earlier jetliners. Um, mm. All the old mechanical gauges and stuff had been replaced by like TV screens, like CRT screens. Mm. It was so automated that they actually eliminated the position of the flight engineer. So back oh. in the day, you used to have three people in the cockpit. You had the pilot, co-pilot, and then the flight engineer who was like handling all the systems and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, this plane, there was no flight engineer. That's going to be important. So oh, okay. put a pin in that. Uh, this flight was one of four 767s that had just recently been bought by Air Canada. And this specific plane only had 150 hours of flight time. So it was, it was like off of the showroom floor. Like yeah. So before taking off from Edmonton in an earlier flight, so it had flown from Edmonton to Montreal and then it was on its way back. Um, before it left Edmonton on the earlier flight, they had done a pre-flight check that showed that the fuel quantity, sorry, try that again. Mm-hmm. The fuel quantity indication system was faulty. So this is basically like the gas gauge. So they were like, well, we don't have a spare. So basically just calculate how much gas to put in it. And then like, you should be good, but you can't actually check to see how much fuel is in the plane. No. So they fly to Montreal where this part was supposed to be replaced. And they get to Montreal and they're like, "Mm, we don't have one either. So you're going to have to do the same thing. You got to just like calculate how much fuel you got, you're going to put in. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So Bob Pearson, the pilot, was like, well, I want to make sure we have enough. I think they were supposed to originally stop over in Ottawa or something. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't want to have to try and refuel in Ottawa. So make sure there's enough. Calculate the amount of fuel to get me all the way to Edmonton. So that's what they did. Okay. Supposedly. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) So they reached a cruising altitude of 41,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Once they were over Red Lake, Ontario, which is about halfway uh, between Montreal and Edmonton, a cockpit warning sounded. And this alerted Pearson and Quintel. And they also had, like, from the show, they showed that there was another guy in the cockpit. Basically, there was, like, this mechanic okay. who worked for Air Canada, or he was, like, maybe, like, one of the heads of their maintenance department. Okay. And the, they were all friends, so the pilots were like, why don't you come up and, like, check out the new plane? And he was like, cool. He was flying with his wife and kid. Okay. Um. So he's like, cool. Yeah, I'll come hang out in the cockpit for a while. So they're hanging out in the cockpit. Everything's going fine. They're just sort of chatting. And then all of a sudden, beep, 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 this fuel pressure light goes off, which shows that the fuel pump on the left fuel tank was showing low pressure. So they thought it was either probably a faulty sensor reading or that the fuel pump itself may have failed, which is in and of itself, like not, like it's something that happens. And basically the fuel pumps, the way that they're designed, if the fuel pump fails, gravity will still keep pushing fuel into the engine. So they're like, okay. well, if it's, it's a fuel pump, we'll be okay. But then moments later, another warning went off. This indicated a drop in pressure in the right fuel tank. So now it's showing both fuel tanks Oy. have low fuel pressure. This, of course, was an indication of a much more serious problem because these are supposed to be like redundant systems. They're not connected. Yeah. So if... If one fuel pressure warning goes off, it could just be a sensor or whatever. If both go off, okay, there's something not right here. Okay. So they were still 700 miles away from Edmonton. God. Uh, But they were only about 120 miles from Winnipeg. So when this second indication light went off, Captain Pearson was like, we're going to Winnipeg. Like, we got to get this plane on the ground, figure out what's going on. Yeah. They radio in. They tell the air traffic control in Winnipeg hey, we need to come in. They didn't even tell the air traffic control why. They're just like, we need, we need to land in Winnipeg. And the air traffic control was like, cool. Cleared the runway. They made the turn. They start going to Winnipeg, which was kind of south 
of their trajectory. Mm-hmm. And then the left engine failed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just flamed out. Ugh. So this is now like definitive, like we're running out of fuel. Right. Like, and we don't know, is it a fuel leak? Is it what? But we're losing fuel. So like, we need to get this plane on the ground right fucking now um, but they're still like i think 70 some miles away from winnipeg oh my god so they prepared for what was called a single engine landing so these planes are designed where like if one engine fails you can land with just one engine okay but what happens in a single engine landing is basically you have to increase the thrust to the working engine so that you don't lose airspeed because what you don't want to have happen is a stall um, yes and if anyone like when I say stall, I'm not talking like your car stalls. A stall is you lose lift in the wings. It's it, and then you just plummet to the ground. It's just like group. So okay. that, so you have to increase the thrust to not lose airspeed. But the problem with that is once you increase the thrust, it starts pushing that wing. So then it mm. tries to push you into the to a turn. So now you have mm-hmm. to like handle the controls to kind of counteract that because otherwise you'll just spin out and lose control. Okay. Um, but this is something captains are trained for. You know, yeah. they know what to do. So they prepare for the single engine landing. They get clearance to land at Winnipeg. And then the right engine flames out. So now they're flying with no engine power whatsoever. Okay. Not only no engine power, it cuts power to the plane. Like, I so hate all, everything about I this. <laughs> so like all their okay. like fancy new instruments mm-hmm. that they're so proud of just like the captain even says in the episode, he's like, all our nice, colorful instruments just suddenly went black. So okay. they're, at this point, they're thinking they're fucked because they are still 26,500 feet, about 75 miles away from Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And since this was something that was assumed would never occur, like both engines going out, mm-hmm. pilots were just not trained to handle this. Okay. Now, when the power goes out, one of the things that goes out is the hydraulics. So then the plane becomes unmaneuverable because like the forces to like try and Mm -hmm. turn the plane, if you don't have hydraulic power, I mean, think about trying to drive a car without power steering basically. Right. But luckily there was a fail safe for a plane that loses total power. They have something that's called a Ram air turbine. Okay. Basically it's the spring loaded thing on the bottom of the plane that like once the power goes out, it pops down and Uh it's a little propeller. That catches the wind. Okay. And basically creates just enough power that like the instrument panel comes back on and some of the very basic hydraulics. Will okay. Work. So I think you have your rudder controls and a couple things, but there's a lot that still doesn't come back. Okay. One of the things that they lost was the transponder. So this meant the air traffic control in Winnipeg couldn't see the Oh my God. Out. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> so air traffic control then had to switch to what's called primary radar so the way the transponder works from what i understand is it's basically sending a radio signal to the air traffic uh-huh. control tower and they're able to track that primary radar is like the old school radar dishes where it's reflective radar uh-huh. so it's the the dish spinning around and it's like you're bouncing off of it the problem with primary radar is that it's not very accurate which is why they've moved the transponders but okay. it's all they had so air traffic control in Winnipeg is like scrambling to get their primary radar up. And then they, at first they can't even find it because there's just all these dots. They're like, which okay. one is it? Which one? Okay, we think it's this one. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, the flight is losing altitude <sighs> rapidly. And without a flight engineer, this, this normally would have been the flight engineer's job to like 
do all these calculations. Well, now it fell to the first officer, Quintel. Oh, you had to oh do all God. these basically okay. calculations to see if they could even make it to Winnipeg based on their speed, the distance, and the rate of descent. And then, like, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it's all just a bunch of fucking algebra, and I was like, no one cares. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> Someone listening is like, I care. Yeah, well... With, like, a I little mean, tear think, coming out of their I eye. Think all the pilots will care. Like, <laughs> your brother will care. He'll be like, this is important, Scotty. Um, so, first officer can tell, he's, he's frantically trying to make these calculations, but he's waiting on air traffic control who's like got this inaccurate radar to relay like their position. And he's trying to make mm. all these calculations. He didn't even have a hand calculator. He's like doing it all on a fucking notepad. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So it says this, this, I think I, I copied from Wikipedia. It says he used the altitude from one of the mechanical backup instruments while the distance traveled was supplied by the air traffic controllers in Winnipeg measured by the aircraft's radar echo observed at Winnipeg. And then there's this whole like, ratio basically showing that it had a glide ratio of 12 to 1 do not ask me what that means because okay okay um long story short he realized they were going down too fast (sighs) and he was and he was thinking that they were going to fall short of the runway in winnipeg but luckily he was former uh royal canadian air force pilot and he had actually trained at a nearby rcaf station called gimli it was a an airstrip about 90 uh, kilometers north of Winnipeg, and it was about 20 miles okay. closer to their position. So he mm-hmm. told the captain, he told Captain Pearson, hey, maybe we should go to Gimli. They have a big, long runway. I think we can land there. It, it might be safer than try to go to Winnipeg. Pearson was not a big fan of this idea at first. Uh, okay. Because, so a little bit about Gimli, Gimli Station. It was opened in 1943 during World War II. Mm-hmm. It was basically just two big, long runways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was decommissioned in 1971. And this incident's happening in 1983. So it had just been sitting there. It had been sitting there for, for like 12, 12 years. Years, yeah. Ooh, um, okay. Okay, I get was, that. Yeah, since it was decommissioned, there was no air traffic control at Gimli. And more importantly, there were no emergency services. So if the plane <laughs> somehow crashed, broke up, whatever. They were on their own. You're on your own. Ooh. So Pearson still wanted to go to Winnipeg. And they actually got within 35 miles excuse me as i belch into the microphone (laughs) (laughs) that was not a real burp yeah it sounded but it wasn't real Um, mine wasn't scotty's was mine was (laughs) (laughs) so they got within 35 miles of the airport close enough the pearson could see it he could see the airport coming up but can tell is still doing the calculation he says nope we're gonna fall about 15 miles short oh my god okay um, but so at this point, they're like, we have to go to Gimli because Gimli is only 12 miles away. So he makes the Pearson makes a last minute decision. And it's funny in the episode, he's like, okay, I guess we're uh, going to Gimli. Um, <laughs> where is it? Oh my God. <laughs> Cause he had no, like, they had no information on it. And so they're like yep. frantically looking up. They're like, okay, go to this heading. And since they're doing primary radar on the episode, they're showing they have like slide rules and like all sorts oh, of shit. Wow. So he turns to go into Gimli. Well, they run into another problem. Because since, you know, Winnipeg was too far away, they were just going to fall short of the runway. Well, now Gimli is too close. And and since they had no power and only basic hydraulic power, um, that meant they couldn't extend the slats, which would allow them to reduce their airspeed, but also keep their lift. Mm -hmm. So this means they're going to be coming in hot. 
into Gimli. Like, oh, okay. Um, so basically this means that like they were really running the risk of overshooting the runway or they're going to have to do a really dangerously steep descent, mm-hmm. which means when you go into that steep descent, you're going to pick up airspeed. And so then when you hit the runway, you're not going to be able to slow down. Right. <laughs> the episode was pretty funny because it's like, it's showing this little like cheese ball CGI. Like, you know, if they come in to at a normal descent, they miss the runway mm-hmm. and you see this little plane go boop, 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 and then it like goes off the runway and just explodes. And, like, oh or, <laughs> or if they come in <laughs> if they come in with the steep descents, they'll just run off the runway and see the plane do, 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 and then it runs off the runway and just explodes. Oh my god. <laughs> but so they were like, you know, the only thing they could think to do is like, well, we can do a 360 degree turn, mm-hmm. lose altitude, and then come in. Do the calculations? Nope, they're already too low to do that. If they do the 360 degree turn, they're just going to go right into the ground. So they're they're kind of fucked at this point. Yeah, I um, like. Do they are they like, hey passengers, we're <laughs> fucked. We're trying to figure out how to unfuck ourselves. Have a coke. It's it's pretty funny because <laughs> like. So they show, they like radio the cabin crew, like, we have a problem. We're going to, uh, we're going to go to Winnipeg. And then you uh-huh. see the like stewards and stewardesses like going around being like, mm, yeah, prepare for emergency landing. And they talk to one of the um, stewardesses and she's like, yeah, the, you know, all the passengers, they were just very alert. They were listening to everything they said. Everyone was just lovely. And I'm like, oh man, Canada. Like, Canada. it's just so Canadian. Well, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is 100% the type of situation where I would start getting mad at people because if people started to freak out, I, I, I have been known in airports when it's not even like on a dangerous plane, but in an airport when stuff is going a little tits up, like flights have been delayed and stuff, I've been known to tell complete strangers to chill the fuck out. So I feel <laughs> like I I would have a hard time not doing that. I'd be like, you are, you are freaking everybody out. So yeah. you need to relax. Well, it sounds like that wouldn't have been necessary because it sounds like everyone was like, well, okay, I guess yeah. we will prepare for our demise. <laughs> and like the, um, like they they interviewed one of the passengers and he's like, yes, I was thinking about all the people I was mean to in my life that I oh wish I could take it back. <laughs> oh like, my God. I just, I want to hug everybody in Canada right now. Right. But so they're, they're out of options at this point. Oh my God. But Pearson happened to be Aside from being this sort of decorated, very experienced airline pilot, mm-hmm. he happened to also be a hobbyist glider pilot. Okay. And so he knew of a maneuver that he had ever, never actually performed, but he knew about it, which is called doing a forward slip to reduce speed and altitude. It's a glider maneuver. Now, this okay. is a pretty common maneuver that glider pilots will do. As far as I could determine, this had never been done with like a 767 plane. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what a forward slip means is that the pilot, quote, crosses the controls. So this means basically they push the, the rudder one direction, then they push the ailerons, which are what steer the wings, the other direction. Okay. So you're trying to do like two maneuvers kind of opposite each other at the same time. Okay. The closest, like you can see me, but, the, but our listeners can't. Like it's like imagining a car going down the road, mm-hmm. putting it into a skid. Like, okay it, it's like you're trying to keep going straight but you turn the body of the plane sideways okay to use basically to create drag to use the surface area of the plane to slow the plane down now, they didn't know what would happen 
if they tried to do this. And like, okay. you know, it, it's a very, like, if you go, if you, if your nose goes too high up, then you'll stall. If you go too much, you could roll over. Mm-hmm. It was also like no small possibility that the aerodynamic forces would just rip the plane apart. Oh my God. Okay. But they're mm-hmm. like, and on the episode, you see that the guy playing the pilot is like, well, I guess I'll just slip it. And then the co-pilot's like, like <laughs> a boing. boing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he puts it into this forward slip, which tilts the plane like sideways. And he's just like wrestling with the controls. Cause it's like, you got to like do a little bit this way, then a little bit this way. Cause he's sort of trying to reduce the airspeed, bring the plane down at this like precise ratio so that right at the last minute he can straighten out and hit the runway. So the pilot, Captain Pearson's doing this. And this is even more dangerous because they don't have the slats. So the margin of error is like minuscule between losing lift and like just stalling and going to the ground. Okay. Now what First Officer Quintel did not realize Mm -hmm. about Gimli is that after it had been decommissioned as an Air Force strip, it had been turned into what was called the Gimli Motorsports Park. Uh-huh. Um, so it was like they had go-karts and drag uh-huh. racing strips. And this all happened on a Saturday <gasps> in okay. like the middle of the summer. So it was family day. <laughs> oh my uh, God. So people had been drag racing up and down this thing all day. Now, luckily it was towards the end of the day. So the drag racing was done, but all these people were like, they were going to be there all weekend. They were like camping out campers, they're barbecuing some brats, they're drinking the beer. They're just like hanging out at this airstrip, you know, having a nice fun day with their go-karts or whatever. And then here comes Mm -hmm. this fucking plane. Nope, we're coming down. So these two little kids uh, had decided, you know, it's the end of the day. And they decided to just go bike in the length of the runway. So these two little kids, they ride their bikes down to the end of the runway. They turn around, they come back, and then they look over their shoulder. And holy shit, here comes an airplane sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my god yeah and and it's like totally silent because there's no engines so it's just mm-hmm. like what's that and then they look over their shoulder and it's like right on top of them so these kids and it's like part of me is like fucking dumb kids and then the other part of me is like i mean what would i do like you panic in this moment like right. the smart thing for them to do would have been to pedal off to the side just get off of the runway. yeah yeah no, they try to outrun the plane so they're pedaling mm-hmm. down the runway Mm-hmm. as Captain Pearson's coming in, he straightens out, he sees them, and he says he saw them about a 1,000 feet in front of him, which when we talk about an airplane going 200 miles an hour is like nothing. nothing. Yep. He says they were so close that he was able to see the look of terror on their faces Oh my God. as this plane is coming in. Now, one thing I think I forgot to mention, mm-hmm. uh, and this was important, is one of the first things they did when they were, before they went into the slip and they were trying to reduce the airspeed is they put the landing gear down. Okay. You know, to create a little bit of drag. Yeah. But since they had no hydraulics, it, they were just depending on gravity to push the gear down. Okay. Well, the rear wheels were pretty heavy. Okay. So they just snapped into place. The front wheel kind of went bloop and then just hung up there because it wasn't heavy enough. So they're coming in with no front wheel. Great. Yeah, so everything's just amazing uh, yeah. for these people. Everybody's doing fine. Just normal day at work here. So he sees, so they're coming in. He sees these boys trying to pedal away. And he's sitting there thinking, like, well, I can't hit these kids. So he's like, worst comes to worst, I'm going to try and, like, steer oh. the plane off into the grass. Okay. Well, that would have been a terrible idea because 
unbeknownst to him, all the campers and everyone is just lined up along the runway. Oh so my he, God. he would have tried to avoid these kids by plowing into like a crowd. Countless families. Yeah. Yeah. But the rear land. So he comes in for the landing, the rear landing gear held, but the front gear, since it didn't engage, just went back up into the plane and it came down nose first. So it's just down the runway on its nose as they're trying to slow down. And these kids are like pedaling to get a, away from it. He had no capability for steering. Uh, Captain Pearson didn't because since the front wheel had not come down, that's what you steer with. So the mm-hmm. only way he could have tried to steer the plane, if he was going to try and put it off to the side would have been to like vary the brake pressure. But what he ended up doing, he saw, and, and this is actually not super clear to me whether this was an accident or whether he saw this and did it on purpose. But when they had turned the runway into a drag strip, they put this metal guardrail up the length of the runway. So he essentially steered the, whether on purpose or on accident, he steered the plane on top of the guardrail. So it crunched over this guardrail. Okay. And it's basically going right down the guardrail, just crunch, 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 crunch. You know, this was what would the word be um a genius maneuver if you did it on purpose uh-huh. because they <laughs> apparently they did some like simulator tests if that land front landing gear had come down they would have killed those kids they wouldn't have been able to stop the plane it's the combination of the fact that it's scraping along on its nose and then up over this guardrail uh-huh. created enough friction that the plane came to a stop nobody died Oh, so I say it's an air disaster, my God. but it's a happier disaster. <laughs> it's a happy. Well, and the whole time that you've been doing this, you've been like, they, you know, the pilot said and the co-pilot and all of this stuff. And I'm still like, what's going to happen to them? Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> you no, know, everyone... talking about like people on the plane and all that stuff. And I'm still like over yeah. here, white knuckling through this <laughs> story. Yeah, no, everyone survived. Well, I mean, even like when I watched the episode, I knew there were at least some survivors because they're interviewing the pilot and they're interviewing one of the stewardesses and then the one passenger who's like, I wish I was mean to less right. people, you know? Right. So I was like, well, I knew like not everyone died, but apparently nobody died. Uh, they said that the only injuries came from, because when they, when they stopped the cockpit started to fill up with smoke. Mm-hmm. So something was on fire. So they were immediately like evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. Cause apparently not long before this is another famous air disaster. I think it was another air Canada flight had landed. They had some sort of problem, did an emergency landing in Cincinnati. Everything seemed to go fine with the landing. And then mm-hmm. the plane burst into flames and a bunch of people died. Oh, so they were like, we don't want that to happen. So everyone get off the plane. Well, the problem is since it was nose down, the rear chutes were like just dangling off of the plane. It was like too steep, but people still tried to take it. So there were a few injuries where people basically bounced off of the chutes onto the <laughs> onto the runway. Got got kind of scraped up a little bit. Um, got some bruises. I mean, I don't even think anyone broke any bones. I think it was just like scrapes and bruises. Okay. So this was 17 minutes after they initially ran out of fuel. They were able to stop the plane, get everybody off. Wow. So the fire started apparently in the insulating foam that was up in the front landing gear department because of just mm-hmm. the heat from the friction had lit the mm-hmm. foam on fire. So Pearson got out, grabbed grabbed a fire extinguisher, is like spraying it, and then all these drag racing dudes come up with their fire extinguishers and they're like, "Let's help!" And they're like, so they managed to get the fire out. Everyone was fine. 
Of the 61 passengers and eight crew members, like I said, the only injuries were minor scrapes and bruises. And then nobody on the ground was injured, particularly those two kids. They, they got away. Okay. Um, so that's the happy story of the Gimli Glider. Now here's a few of the factors that they decided contributed to the disaster. Okay. Uh, the Aviation Safety Board of Canada did an investigation. Aviation Safety Board of Canada, it's basically like their version of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, which does all mm-hmm. the aircraft investigations in this country. And they found a few things that had contributed to this. Okay. So the first was that fuel quantity indication system being faulty. So okay. the, the flight crew didn't have any real-time indication of how much fuel they actually had. They were just going off of mm-hmm. this calculation that they had done. Mm-hmm. So Air Canada was kind of faulted for this. And I think they were told like, hey, keep, maybe keep a few more spare parts on hand. Because right. <laughs> like, you're in Edmonton and it was broken. Oh, and then you got all the way to Montreal. You still didn't have a spare part and you tried right. to send it back to Edmonton. Like maybe have one in Montreal. Just right. Just a thought. Just a thought. But here's what really caused the problem. Oh, okay. So because they had to do calculate by hand how much fuel goes in the way the fuel trucks measure the amount of fuel they have on hand like the fuel trucks on the tarmac is by volume which is by liters Mm -hmm. Uh, planes measure fuel by weight which up to this point had generally been pounds so you had to do this conversion between liters and pounds to know how much fuel to put into the plane oh my god okay but the Boeing 767 was one of the first planes that decided to switch to a metric fuel gauge. So rather than convert from liters to pounds, mm-hmm. you're supposed to convert from liters to kilograms. Oh, God. Well, since the, this plane was so automated, they had eliminated the flight engineer position. The flight engineer was the person who was supposed to double check this. For whatever reason, the ground crew had problems <laughs> doing this calculation. Here's right. a quote. I just took this from Wikipedia. It says, on the day of the accident, two technicians and two pilots worked on the calculation in Montreal. One technician stopped after he found he wasn't making any progress. He's just bad at math, I guess. Another technician was using a piece of paper that he had in his pocket, but he stopped when he ran out of space. So first officer Quintel did the calculation by hand, and then Captain Pearson checked his arithmetic with his Jeppesen slide rule. The problem is, since they had switched to this metric fuel gauge system, and since they had eliminated the flight engineer position, Air Canada never actually decided, hey, whose job is it to figure this out? So you have, like, all these people sort of being like, I don't know, I guess this is right. Nobody thought to double-check that calculation to switch from pounds to kilograms. Well, a pound is about half of a kilogram. So they had almost exactly half the amount of fuel that they needed. So 100% human error from, like, everybody involved. And it's kind of a bummer because, like, you know, Captain Pearson and the first officer, they were really, like, they did this great job of getting them Mm -hmm. on the ground. They were treated as heroes, Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And then the investigation was like, actually, it's kind of they fucked up. So they were both reprimanded. Uh, Captain Pearson was demoted for six months. And then first officer Quintel was suspended for two weeks. They did, however, successfully appeal their suspensions and were returned to flight status. And I think Captain Pearson flew like another 20 years or something. Oh, okay. And it's like, I can't be too mad at these guys because it's like, clearly the airline had kind of screwed up, let something fall between the cracks. Yeah. It's an easy mistake to make. Yeah. And then once like shit hit the fan, I mean, you couldn't imagine 
better pilots. Like if Captain Pearson hadn't had this experience as a glider pilot and knew about this maneuver and then had the guts to try it in a aircraft that was not designed to do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's some, that's some, there, you know, you said the thing of like 17 minutes after they realized that they were out of fuel, like the amount of decisions and the, the yeah. rapidness of having to like the speed with which they made those decisions yeah that in and of itself is is worthy of note yeah and i mean at one point so they had the other guy like the maintenance guy in the cockpit for a while Mm -hmm. and at least on the air disasters episode they show like the captain they're trying to figure out what's going on he's like uh joe have can you think of anything we're missing and the guy's like nope and then when they're like getting ready to do the side slip thing (laughs) the guy's just like you know what i'm gonna go hang out with my family Uh, Because, like, you don't need me here. Just in and case. Maybe like to look at my child's face one more time in case this doesn't oh work. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so, but they were returned to flight status. And then in 1985, they were both awarded the first ever Federation Aeronautique Internationale Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship. Good for them. And then two days later, after the plane went down at Gimli, they were able to fly it into Winnipeg to do the repairs and returned it to service. And it was finally retired from service in 2008. So there's nothing wrong with the plane. It was just fucked up pounds versus kilograms. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Pause for just a second because I sure. keep hearing I keep hearing weird noises in my house. Okay, I'm so gonna leave this in now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, if something happens to me, don't, but hold on. Yeah. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. Everything's okay? Ooh, yeah, everything was fine. And it's just, I have a noisy house to begin with. Um, Hold on, I'm all wrapped up. So I have a noisy house to be like, it it's, makes a lot of noises settling and all that stuff, but I was starting to hear things that I was like, that's not the fucking house settling. <laughs> and I've been hearing them throughout your story, but they started to like pick up and I was like, I'm not going to get murdered on my fucking podcast. No. So no, it's the reptilian humanoids were like, don't talk about us. What are you doing? <laughs> They're all here. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Hi. It's George W. Bush and the Pope. <laughs> Chris Christopherson. Ah. <laughs> Beyonce. Yeah. Help. Okay, um, yes, everything's fine. So that is the story of the Gimli Glider. So that like was I fantastic. Said, like a, a happy air disaster story. Like an oh. almost disaster, but not. Oh my God. I just can't. I cannot imagine like I said, having all of that stuff going wrong and having the the clarity mm-hmm. to be able to be like, okay, nope, this, okay, that's not working. Okay, this. And then like, you know, the first officer being like, let me do some, let me, let me do some algebra and stuff real fast. Like, let's yeah. g- give, give me a sec. All of it. Wow. I'm, one thing I like about this story, because I watch all these air disaster episodes and like, I would say fully half of them, it's mm-hmm. like pilot error and then everyone dies. Yeah. And it'll be like, it'll be like, you know, the worst ones, like I said, are like those Russian stories where it's just like the guy was drunk and like, right. But there are a couple of these stories that they have. They'll have the occasional one where a pilot does something sort of amazing. And then either most of the people or all of the people survive. And it sort of gives you that little bit of hope of like, you know, if you're on a plane 
and you got a really good pilot you know they can get you through this you know another great story i mean everyone kind of knows the miracle on the hudson story from right and that's another one that like it's just like you had the right pilot at the right time kept his cool put the plane in the river everyone made it off everything was good I feel like I remember hearing that there were people that were like super grumpy about that, that they were like, when we landed in the river, or no, I don't think it was passengers. I think it was like, uh, I think it was like other pilots and stuff that were like, well, and I think, I think when they did the investigation, there were people trying to find fault with what he did. And it was like, well, you could have made it to Newark or blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Hey, you got to make a split second decision. Everyone made it out. Okay. Yeah. And okay. What's the difference? Like yeah. I didn't make it to Newark. It's so why I landed in the river. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody was fine. So who cares? Yeah. I think a lot of times these investigations and it's not just a matter of like the air, aircraft ones. I think this happens in a lot of spaces where it just turns into a like, well, we got to assign blame somewhere. So right. there's some, and like with this Gimli glider story, I mean, clearly Captain Pearson and Officer Quintel, like they screwed up that calculation. Mm-hmm. Like you can point to that and say like, if you would double check that, very simple thing you would have been right um so you know okay ding them for that but at the same time i think acknowledge like these guys were genuine heroes right like this not only could have been a disaster for the people on the plane but all these people on the ground yeah all these people on the ground and i think something that like if i'm remembering things that that i have heard is that a lot of this stuff is is oh uh like you can be talking about pilots who, you know, are are overworked, underslept, right. um, you know, with all this stuff. Like my 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 brother gets very grumpy about people buying plane tickets on things like, well, I guess I won't say that the actual websites names, but on like <laughs> discount air travel websites, yeah. because. It, it like the series of events that that launches off means again that pilots are working you know they're overworked and they're underslept and like you know they've shown that being underslept starts to have an effect the way that like drinking or yeah, or, or drugs will that yeah you become impaired in a way that you're you you're not firing on all cylinders well and, um so they just think that's something to important to remember when we're talking about human error is yeah of course there's just regular human error where people are just like I, sorry i just yeah. i i fucked up but well, you'll get the like horrifying stories of like pilots who have a breakdown and then purposely crash a plane uh, those yes. are so fucking rare though Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of pilot error stories where it's like, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to handle that. You know, I, yeah. and, and what's interesting when you watch the show is that they'll talk about, okay, well, here was the pilot error or here's the mechanical error. And mm-hmm. then here's all the things that have been done to address it. Mm-hmm. And one big source of pilot error, and I'm sure this is something your brother can talk about, was what they call CRM. It's crew resource management. Mm-hmm. And basically the way, you know, historically it was like the captain, like the word was law. The first staff officer was not to yep. question the captain, yep. et cetera. And they realized that was leading to a lot of plane crashes. So now yeah. it's like the captain, you know, has to defer, like they have to discuss everything. They have to go through these specific checklists to mm-hmm. do it. And it's done a lot to eliminate pilot error. Yeah. um, So I just read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers and he Mm -hmm. spends a good portion of time talking about that because not only is it the hierarchy of pilot uh, versus first officer and all that stuff, but also he talks at length about a crash that happened with 
a Canadian airline, I'm sorry, not a Canadian, a Colombian airline flight Mm -hmm. that uh, was supposed to land at JFK and and it ended up crashing. And what happened there was a a cultural communication breakdown between the Colombian first officer and the air traffic controller at JFK. Oh, I think they're, I think they're, they have an episode, one of these air disaster episodes on that one. That sounds familiar. Yeah. And so going in and talking about, and it, like all of that has to do with um, how cultures, what is it? It's like conflict averse versus mm-hmm. conf, like conflict avoidant versus conflict uh, something. But basically, you know, if you feel like somebody is in a higher position of power to you, you won't be like, hey, you don't and like, them you don't question it. And it, they, they talk, he talks in the book about how air traffic controllers at JFK, like they're, you know, they're moving. They, it's, it's JFK. So they don't like, they're, they're not polite. They're curt, they're brusque and all of those things. So the, the pilots really need to be like, Hey, and what happened with that? Yeah. Yeah. I need this information. You need to listen to me. What happened with this Colombian flight is that the first officer kept being like, I don't know if we have the fuel, yeah. Wait. Yeah, I remember that one. And air traffic was like, okay, like where they, he, he should have like, been like, we are out of fuel. We're we out of fuel. Get us on the yeah, ground. and we need to, and because the whole thing could have been avoided if if the communication had been right, and air traffic control could have been like, okay, cool, let us put everybody right. on the back burner. They you had come them, in immediately. They had them in like a holding pattern where they were yep. just circling because there's too much and just traffic. burning. Yeah, and just yeah, burning through the fuel that they had, and that was also exacerbated by the fact that like the pilot himself was exhausted, so he kept being like, "Have you told them? Have you told them that we don't have fuel?" And the first mm-hmm. officer was like, "Yes," because in the first officer's mind he had right and and so uh malcolm gladwell talks about this all like he he also talks about you know cultures where the onus of understanding is put on the speaker and then cultures uh, where the onus of understanding is put on the listener on the Mm -hmm. receiver and how if you'd have two people from like if you have one person from each culture having a conversation stuff is just gonna yeah it's it's just gonna fly by Mm -hmm. yeah Oh. Yeah, no, that I remember that story. And then, yeah, like the overworked and underpaid thing. Like, apparently, a lot of like the charter airlines and mm-hmm. then, like, you know, the the short hop kind of commuter airlines, mm-hmm. like, this is a real problem. Like, they're, they're not paying their pilots enough. They're making them wait, work like these crazy long hours, not giving them a turnaround. And, like, uh-huh. this is dangerous. This is, this yeah. is creating dangerous situations. I think, and like, obviously, your brother can fact check me on this. Mm-hmm. A lot of those problems have been addressed because people like this was causing plane crashes. And I think there are like much more stringent regulations around that, but I'm sure right. there's, and I think also when you get into some of the other countries, like their regulations are not very well enforced. So, right. you know, it's always like, there's always a risk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's definitely countries where my brother is like, do not fly a national airline from countries A, B, and C. I mean, I'm just going to say it right here. I will, uh, like, after watching this show, I don't ever want to fly on a plane in Russia. Right. And I mean, part, (laughs) and like, you know, and it's so funny because all this stuff is so interwoven too, because, you know, anytime stuff starts coming up about deregulating Mm-hmm. things my brother is like you know talk to talk talk to the airlines in in these countries and see how well they're doing with yeah. you know with the privately free run yeah yeah and and, it, and i mean we could go off on a tear about all this but i mean so much of it has to do with capitalism because mm-hmm. people are like no i can't make a 7 a.m flight i need to be able to make a 7 30 a.m flight mm-hmm. and it's like you know what no like there's just not a flight 
Yeah. And, and, and whoever yeah. is making you travel for business or whatever, like they need to fucking get over it. Right. But, but it's, it's like not because maximize it's productivity and 100%, which is minimize is, cost. And right. Which all of this is, is right. I, I mean, literally killing people. Yeah. So, um, you know, but there is a reason yeah. why, like, I feel like when we were kids, it seemed like every other week there was some massive plane crash. It felt like that. And then, like, you don't hear too much about huge plane crashes anymore. You know, they do happen, but they're, they're, they seem much more rare. And I think a big part of it is, like, there is a culture, I think, particularly with these safety boards, of, like, you learn from past mistakes. So when something goes wrong, you try to figure out, okay, let's – how do we come up with a system or a new technology or a new right. training to make sure this doesn't happen again? And I think it really has had a big effect, you know, even things like yeah. going to transponders rather than primary radar, you know, that was right. because they had some crashes where like they didn't know where the plane was. So I think like, to me, it's like, as much as I say like, Oh, this show gave me a like phobia of flying, which it kind of did. Right. It also gives me, I always, when I watch the show, I'm always like, well, at least they fixed that problem. Right. Until you watch another episode where it's like, oh, no, apparently they didn't fix that problem because the right. same fucking thing happened. Or a new problem has been or discovered. Or a new problem. Like the worst, and I'll, I'll leave on this uh, grimmer note, was I think it was oh. the famous, I think it was the famous flight in Chicago. Like if you see the picture of them <gasps> totally on its oh, side. Oh, I hate it's so it's it's so terrifying yeah. it, it makes my stomach turn just like to see it the late 70s early 80s and that was mm-hmm. one where like everybody died it was a huge crash it was like 200 mm-hmm. some people but it was because they i think it was this flight i may be mixing it up with another one but they mm-hmm. had had to do some maintenance on the plane they had to take the wing off and then they put the wing mm-hmm. back on and they didn't they forgot like the top bolts on the engine like because they had to take the engine off the wing so then when they took off just the engine fell off and then the plane went bloop to its side Ugh. right into the Oof. ground yeah yeah so hopefully that doesn't happen again oh, hopefully they go. fix wait. that problem yeah <laughs> <laughs> but anyway the gimli glider everyone lived Yay! hey gimli glider and the denver internet denver international airport conspiracy theories yeah. well done yeah so this was this was a fun one so yeah, this is the weirdest thing, episode seven. Remember, uh, go to your podcast streaming app and rate us, review us, subscribe, tell your friends, mm-hmm. post on social media. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram. We do have a website, weirdestthingpod at gmail.com. I'm like ninety percent sure. Oh yeah, email. Sorry. <laughs> I'm ninety percent <laughs> sure I gave you the right email address, but I'm not going to check it this time. You guys can find it on. Yeah, I think it's weirdest thing pod. I think it's weirdest because thing I, pod. We had a whole email. thing. We had a whole thing last week about is it the weirdest thing or is it yeah. is it pod or podcast? And I believe it's weirdest thing pod at gmail. Yeah. So send us story ideas, um, thoughts. If you send um, us mean emails, we're going to read them in a mocking manner. Yeah. In oh yeah, episodes. 100% happen. If you accuse us <laughs> of being members of the Bavarian Illuminati, we will mock you relentlessly <laughs> on this show. Or will we? Or Maybe will. we'll just come after you in the night. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So think twice before you click send. And, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. And Thanks, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. All right. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.